Hello everyone and welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. For those of you that are new here, I'm your host Ethan Bridge and thank you for joining me on today's episode. On today's episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking to Dale Dupree. Dale is the founder of The Sales Rebellion, who exists to change the game in so he quotes the ever so boring sales bullpen. He teaches you to cause undeniable curiosity, wander your territory, breathe life into your pipeline and take your prospects on an adventure. Dale is an exemplary model of what it means to be yourself. He embodies practicing what you preach and isn't afraid to own his mistakes. For him, the sales rebellion is the fruition of a decade of waking up every morning determined to know true success. Dale's mission is to give other sales professionals confidence to lead the charge for change in their respective industries, just as he exists to change the game and rebel against the status quo of the sales world. Dale and I discuss some interesting client outreach tactics, opposed to your traditional, sometimes extremely painful cold call. It's important to take your prospects and pipeline on a journey, more of which you will learn throughout the episode. He is also very familiar with LinkedIn, amassing over 22,000 followers who are all extremely engaged with his content. So we discuss some key tactics on how to grow a close-knit community who value and engage with your content on the platform. I learned a lot from Dale throughout our conversation, so I urge you all to take note of what he has to say. So without any further ado, let's dive straight into today's episode. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. I am super excited today because we have Dale Dupree on the show and it's I can already feel the energy. It's going to be brilliant. So, Dale, how are you doing today? I'm awesome, Ethan. Thanks for having me on the show, bro. The pleasure is all mine, honestly. Thank you for your time. So, for the listeners who don't know who you are, do you want to just give us a quick 60-second introduction of who you are and what you do, please? Yeah, for sure. My name is Dale Dupree. I'm the leader of the Sales Rebellion, formerly known as the Legendary Copier Warrior. I've been in B2B sales for 13 years as a copier salesman, not just an individual contributor, but also a VP of sales and eventually a manager over an entire territory. Um, But also, I decided one day that the things that I was developing as a sales rep and as a VP and as a manager over a territory, that I had a system that I liked when it came to the sales cycle itself and when it came to communication, when it came to building my business. And I, in a realization moment, decided that nobody else can really take the things that I'm good at and do them. But what other people could do is tap into their own authenticity. And in those moments, I started to decide that the way that we teach people is incorrect in the sales world. Do this and you'll close the deal. Say that and you'll get to, you know, past the prospecting phase and into the client relationship. I believe that people naturally do business with others because they like and trust them. And because of that, I quit my job at my comfy six-figure gig and I started the sales rebellion. And so here I am today. Awesome. And I think it's pretty evident that today's main topic is going to be sales. But before we jump into that, (laughs) before we jump into that, I like to start the episode by throwing it back with my guests and sort of talking about their childhood, specifically their time at school. So let's focus on a 14-year-old version of yourself. 
How were you in school? Were you a straight A student, found school easy? Did you just coast along, get the grades you needed to get? Or were you just simply the class clown and did not give a damn? (laughs) I think a lot of people would probably think that that last one was the (laughs) truth, right? And it probably partially is, but here's one for you. I was homeschooled, me and my three siblings. So my mother, who is a queen and an absolutely amazing human being, who sacrificed her personal life and her professional career to an extent to make sure that we had a classical education. So at 14, I was actually doing like college level courses and prepping for SATs. And academically, like I was on point. I, I, I was a kid that when, when you I say homeschool, you think Mormons or some weird, you know, sect of humanity that does things differently than everybody else. But when I say that I was homeschooled, I mean that my mom and dad, they didn't trust other people to make us the men and women that we have grown to become. But instead, what they did trust is they trusted themselves to be able to at least guide us and they trusted us to make our own decisions. And by homeschooling us, it gave us that opportunity for us to learn in a manner that was a lot different than kids in school. Instead of, you know, focusing on grades, we were focused on the activity itself. We were focused on the experience itself. We were focused more on the learning because we were making it fun and we were personalizing every single moment inside of our, our schooling. We also were, were, we started at like 6.37 a.m., right? So, which I I know that most kids are getting on the bus at that time, right? But we were having breakfast as a family and then sitting in our respective classrooms doing schoolwork and we did it all day, bro. So I I was a straight A student to an extent, right? There were some challenges, I would say is probably the best way to put it with some subjects, but like some people have problems with math. Well, my mom was a math major. So when I had problems with math, my mom was extremely good at teaching us how to get around that. So I, I passed with A's, but I'll tell you as soon as like a year after high school, I had zero idea how to do anything with math again until I got back into sales, to be quite frank with you, because I actually played in a band and went on tour all over the United States for a, a stint of my life as well, too. But, but school is something that I'm passionate about because of my upbringing, right? I believe that the classical education is extremely important for the next generation, especially, and mostly from the perspective of building people that act more as shepherds when they come out of high school, they come out of middle school and they come out of college instead of sheep. So despite being homeschooled then, would you always have considered yourself entrepreneurial? Because I know you touched on the fact that you were in a band and for someone that was, as you say, you were quite academic going into music and things like that may have not been the route your parents wanted to go you to go down. I may not know how your parents uh, feel about your education and where they wanted to direct you in life, but you went off in a band and traveled the country and traveled the U S like you said, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely always saw myself as some type of entrepreneurial spirit, but more than anything, I saw myself as an entertainer. That's how, and I still do, to be quite frank with you. I look at myself as somebody that's able to bring my curiosity or my creativity to the table to create curiosity in others, which draws them in, attracts them, and, and causes self-growth, self-development. And it also causes people to be more aware of who they are, which is extremely important, not only in society, but in sales. So from an entrepreneurial perspective, when I was, I was 17, I had the ability to be able to go get scholarships or, or take scholarships or to play in a band. And uh, Indiana, you're dead on that. My mom and dad didn't necessarily say like, yeah, go play in a band, dude. You know, but they also gave me the choice. You know, they said, well, if you don't do college and you want to get a career afterwards, it's not going to be easy peasy because they were still baby boomers. 
they came from a generation that taught you that college was extremely important. Without it, you wouldn't get very far. But a, a fun fact that I learned more of as I got older, which was a big piece of the puzzle for uh, my upbringing in general, but also for my entrepreneurial spirit as I got older was that something my dad never told me, which is that he didn't finish college. <laughs> so now he didn't finish college because he got a football injury and ended up coming back and working instead because it, you know, his, his academics at that point didn't really matter because they were so focused on sports and he was never going to play again. He had a surgery that botched his ankles and then he blew his knees out. So was, he was done. Um, but you know, in the, in the process of me making these decisions, there was a little heat. I mean, of course there was, I think any parent rightfully so would think, is this the right choice for my child? Because especially I have a son now, he's two years old, about going on two right now. And, and, and being in my father's shoes from the perspective of that, he's just a kid. I already start, have started to think about what kind of choices is he going to make and what should my influence be? So I think what was great about my parents is that they were influencers more than they were people that were directing or making me do something from the perspective of their leadership. Right. And, and that was key to, to my entrepreneurial upbringing. So. For sure. So, where did your passion for sales come into play then? I, was it the fact that were you the guy in the band that pretty much organized everything, got the gigs under the on, on contract, and you could you were the person that basically organized the tour as such? Where, where did where did the passion for sales begin? The passion for sales began the day that I took the the stage and was the front man for the band where I realized that every night I had to sell myself to strange people. They had to be somewhat indoctrinated into my presence in that moment because they came for another band. We were just a, a, either a local band in, in the Central Florida region, or if we were out on tour, we were the opening act and nothing more in the beginning. And so I realized very quickly that there was a game being played here. And it was like the, the battle for the heart and soul of the person that was in the room to be a little overly emotional about it. But that was conceptually, that's what you were doing every night, how, how, helping people to realize that they wanted to fall in love with you and with your product and, and with everything that it was that you stood for. And I would say that from that, where my, my sales nature really kicked in was when I was walking around and there was a couple of the other guys in the band that were really good at this too, but just you know putting CDs in a backpack meeting people and cutting deals like 20 bucks for a shirt and a pen and a sticker and a CD. Right. And, and that was fun for me. Right. And, and more so though, the entertainment side of it was what was fun, like getting on stage and giving people an experience. And I believe that sales are based around experiences without giving people a good experience. They're not going to be tempted to pull the trigger with you if somebody else is. So, so where, so where did you actually start your own business then where did you decide to go off on your own and dedicate the whole career to solely sales where did the sales rebellion uh, root from it originally rooted in 2009 when i started to develop my own sales system when i was in the midst i was one year into taking my first professional sales training course i went full-time sales at the end of 2008 well somewhere in that 2007 2008 range 
Um, and then within a year and a half, you know, I realized that I did, I sucked and I wasn't as good as I thought. And I realized that from the very beginning, to be quite frank with you, but I was working on my own personal development, listening to books, uh, you know, on CD at the time, that was a thing, um, instead of Spotify. And then also doing a little bit of reading here and there, but, but honestly, like for me, it was about on the go learning. So for me, it was like, who could I, can I conveniently listen to in the car so that I can learn more? And David Sandler was one, Brian Tracy was another, Zig Ziglar was one, right? So I was, I learned from, from the, the, the men and women that were kind of the founding fathers of sales to some capacity in their own right. And, and I realized that, well, this is the year 2008 and, and these people existed a long time ago. And although I love their systems and their thought processes, I thought to myself, we should be doing things a little bit differently. You know, just getting on the phone and making 150 phone calls a day to set 10 appointments to maybe make one sale was insanity. And that we needed to start to change some of these concepts. And so that's really truly when the sales rebellion was born uh, without me even knowing it, to be quite frank with you. Um, but as I developed the structure and by 2013, I had an entire system that I stayed true to under my own umbrella where from point A to point Z and beyond, you know, so after the sale was closed, the post-sale processes and how do you retain a client respectfully and appropriately? How do you continue to build a relationship, stay relevant with the account and not lose sight of the things that you built from the beginning? Um, so, I, so the whole system from that perspective, but it was 2019 when the sales rebellion was born in March. So I've only been on my own for less than a year at this point. And it's going pretty well by the looks of it. And I know, well, the sales rebellion sounds pretty intense by the, by the name, as in you're, not, you're going down a different route. You're going away from the normal tactics. So I want to talk about some of your alternative outreach methods that I've seen you mention on your LinkedIn profile and I've seen you mention in various other places as well. So the burnt letter and the things like the letter that looks as if, it's, as if it's been around the world because, and these, I think these are great concepts because sales often lacks creativity nowadays. As you say, it's simply just pick up a cold call. Obviously there's alternative scripts people use, but cold calling sales are the two things people instantly think are hand in hand. So mm -hmm. these alternative outreach methods that you suggest Often, if people were to receive these, would people think, oh, where the hell has this come from as such? They don't see that as often. So what? Tell us a little bit more about these methods that you suggest people use. Yeah, so they're, they're founded around the basics of communication. So from human to human as well, too, not just like communication as a whole, the theory of one person talking to another. A lot of it is formulated around storytelling because of that, the most primal way to communicate with another human being. The concepts of causing curiosity, undeniable curiosity at that is a big principle inside of the sales rebellion and our outreach processes. Um, but also this concept of interruption marketing, where in the past, talking about being an interruption was typically negative. And, and the way that interruption marketing even was created was very negative. It was kind of like get in someone's face, be as super loud as you possibly could, and, and disrupt is really what the, the concept was, where interruption and disruption are two completely different things. Um, and so kind of studying psychology, studying some of the more tactile ways of marketing that are strategic that again connect with the human being and not so much the product or the process 
uh, we can have more success inside of our prospecting efforts to begin with. And sometimes it's as simple as, you know, when people say, well, I don't want to do all these crazy things that you do. Um, sometimes it's as simple as just changing your script and actually throwing the script out completely and changing your mindset. That's what's more important than anything is creating a mindset of success by choosing to be a legend inside of your sales walk to begin with. When you have, when you use the power of words and you use the concepts of rising above the mediocre, then there's nothing else on the other side except for success to begin with. Even if it's not as big as you wanted it to be, you're going to build a tribe. You're going to attract people that want to to benefit you, that want to provide for you and your family, that want you to be a part of their culture and their system that they have internally at their office or outside of it. Because I'll tell you this, you know, inside of the relationship building aspect of what we're talking about here, I mean, I've been to, to functions that, that typically you and I would only go to with our families, right? So going to see somebody get baptized, for example, right? You don't get invites like that from somebody that you provide a copier for, right? You get invites like that from people that believe in who you are, but you talked about the, uh, the pre-burnt letter a little bit. This is the actual, I know people can't see this, but this is the envelope that we use where the edges are burnt and it has, you know, the words Kindle inside. There's a, a literal piece of paper inside of that envelope that's burnt up, right? That we, we created a design for, right? You can see all the burns on the letter. So it's an experience for the prospect when they get it. And that's what it's all about. I tell people all the time when they say, what is the sales rebellion about when it comes to the prospect inside? Simply put, we're the Disney for salespeople, right? And, they, and this is the concept of that is that when you go to Disney in the first place, the best part about getting in the lines are the queue. So when you get set up into the line, it's, 30 minutes to an hour sometimes. But the best part is, is that most of the time you don't even notice, <laughs> excuse me, because you're watching, you're literally watching things evolve around you. There's props everywhere. It's very interactive is the concept, right? And so we believe in the same methodology from a prospecting perspective before you've ever gotten to the ride, you and the prospect interacting for the first time, make a good first impression, give them an experience leading up to that, that finale, that ride, right? So, and the, and the ride being the entire sales system or sales cycle, I should say. But again, if you set the right expectations at the front, everything will be different when it comes to outcomes and everything will be different during the process itself. So if you've got actually any data that proves the success of your, of these methods over just the simple cold email, cold call, for me, I have massive amounts of data personally, but here's the big piece of the puzzle is that like I talked about earlier, what works for me isn't going to always work for you, right? And so what we do when we, when we, even when we teach on these subjects or sell these products to people is we encourage them from the very beginning to make this your outreach piece. The people that adapt to this the same way that I created it for myself. So they still use the basic principles and, and in that, I mean the copy that we use because it's all psychologically based around communication theories and methods, right? So things that we know and are proven through science and psychology to get someone's attention, even the most narcissistic person or the most introverted person will respond to these types of outreach pieces because of the way that it stirs emotion and it causes the brain to think not just on one part of the brain, but in the entire scope of how you can utilize your brain when it comes to retaining and collecting information. But a good example of your question, or a good answer for your question is a text message uh, that I got from a rep recently that's in Texas. And I'm just gonna read this to you. And he said specifically that I, I tested your theory 
of the crumpled letter against my own prospecting methodology. I spent one week doing cold calls and I targeted 10 specific people. This now, listen up, everybody listening to this. This is an elite salesperson. He's an A player, right? So this isn't just somebody doing cold calls. So when I say that, I, when I read this to you, I want you to understand that when he says he targeted 10 accounts, he had information. He's not, he's not dumbed down to sales, right? He was asking for people. He, he knew the departments that he was looking into. So it's not just like he was spraying and praying. So 10, 10 outreach, he, he reached out to 10 people specifically. And over the course of a couple of weeks, he set about three appointments from those 10 targeted calls. He used my crumpled letter and I can't use the language that he put in here just because I don't want people to, to hear me saying the F word 18 times. But he literally talks about how he got nine out of 10 appointments set using the campaign for the letters. Now, remember, the letters are a cadence, too. So sometimes it takes multiple weeks. And it did for in this instance, but he was able to get to nine of the 10 people and set appointments over time. And again, so the, the concept here is that it's not so much about how it works for me or how it works for you even. It's about how it works for individuals when they adapt these things and they understand the power behind them. I tell people all the time when I train them on these things and they say, oh, this is fun. Yeah, let me give it a try. Well, when they give it a try what typically happens is they have an awakening because they think in their head, they're like, Oh cool. You got nine out of 10 appointments. Well, they don't understand what those conversations sounded like. Mm -hmm. When you hear the, the, the prospect tell you, give you feedback on the outreach, everything changes. It all suddenly makes sense to you further than it just being like, this sounds cool. And I think this will work. It, it starts to become something that you can strategize over and again, personalize for yourself so that you can have the maximum amount of uh, success possible. And it shows that just even that extra bit of effort of putting it into a letter or just creativity opposed to simply just picking up the phone and having a s standard cold call script is that that experience, as you say, can completely change someone's mind because they don't hear it often. It is not something they hear every day. So I've got a, I've got a question then. What is the worst sales advice that you often hear people throwing around? The worst sales advice that I hear people throwing around is when they tell people to focus on the metrics of sales. So look to the results, look to the pipeline, look to the activity. Those are important things, but they're just the facts, right? Every single one of us should know that those things exist. It's in between those lines that, that the information that is found uh, there that truly matters, right? It, it, it is this concept of when sales professionals or leaders or influencers tell you and I that volume is still something that's extremely relevant. It is if you make it extremely relevant, but it doesn't have to be in the year 2020. You can make 10 targeted cold calls using an interruption mindset piece and you can make nine appointments as proved by a very elite salesperson in the middle of Texas, right? But that the thing is, is that that is cultured over time, right? This person also didn't just pick my stuff up and say, I'm going to prove you wrong. They saw what I was doing and liked it. It's a movement, dude, more than anything, right? And that's what's wrong with sales is that sales and the way that people are typically talking about it is, is the opposite of the way that, that elite salespeople are, are flowing and the movement that they're creating and the rhythm that they have for themselves. So we're trying to bring those things to the surface of the sales rebellion and to say, listen, you guys don't need to be a slave to your quota. You don't need to look at metrics as the only way to hit, you know, this many calls, this many touches that to hit 
said quota. You can start being authentic. You can start, you can shift your mindset to being more genuine, to being more compassionate, more empathetic, and also more driven, right? That I think more than anything, what we miss in sales these days is how to motivate salespeople to become better to begin with. Instead, we focus so much on just do, just do the activity. And in two years, you'll have it figured out. Well, in six months, they fire you. So what I see absolutely zero connection between those two things in, in most cases when it comes to the way that leaders lead and then the way that they back up their message in the first place. So because we have so much hypocritical information coming out of leaders and, and influencers' mouths in the sales world today, we cause confusion constantly for salespeople. Nobody knows what the best way to do anything is. And, the, and that's truly the problem that everyone's out looking for the best way to do it to begin with when it all starts right in front of their face at the level of them, their authenticity and how people buy in the first place. Right. I'm sure. And everything takes time as well. It's, you're not going to do your first cold call. You're not going to do your first pitch, as you say, sending out your crumpled letter. And it's not going to, it might not work first time. People get disheartened by the fact that they may do that first time and they get a no, or they get a F off. I don't want to talk to you. And it, it puts them in that mindset that, oh, this just doesn't work, which isn't true. They need to adapt. They need to take time because especially with cold outreach or targeted outreach, it can be like that. It's not, for, it's, it, ta- it takes time and you could do a hundred calls before you even land your first meeting. People need to, people get disheartened very quickly today. And I think it's definitely something they need to overcome, but they'll get the hang of it. They'll become more comfortable and as I say, you've got to provide the other person. And as you say time and time again, you've got to provide the person on the other end of experience. That's what they're looking for. They don't want another boring pitch. Right. So I'm going to go into my, uh, my new segment of the podcast. You are the second person, maybe second or third person to do this. And I know I mentioned before the episode to think about this, but it's where we discuss what you believe to be your two biggest failures in your journey so far. And We'll talk about each one one by one. And so we'll talk about the experience and the lessons you've learned because for the listeners, this is sort of just a section because especially with social media nowadays, we always see now, especially from entrepreneurs in the business space, is a highlight reel. We're seeing the point today where these individuals have already reached a level of success. We are seeing the, we're seeing the nice houses, the nice holidays, the cars, but what we haven't seen are the endless hours of struggle and sacrificing family and friendships and the time you're spending with other people, a social life, you're sacrificing a whole social life and just hours of grueling work every single day to get to the point where they are today. But they haven't shared that. It's not been a simple overnight success, which they're now sharing on Instagram. There's been a lot of time behind it and they have failed in the time leading up to that point. So this is sort of a segment of the show where I bring out these failures of these entrepreneurs and get them to talk about it because everyone's human nothing's everyone has failed at some point in their business journey if it's if it were that easy everyone would do it if it was easy as success 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 no failure everyone would be an entrepreneur simple as so dale what is your what would you consider your first biggest failure i think my first biggest failure was stepping into my sales role when i when i got off um touring with my band and thinking that somehow i was just going to out the gate be making a ton of money um, and mostly it was because of my mindset. Now, I want to preface that, or I want to I want to also just sidebar here, actually, and just say that my father was my biggest influence in my 
business walk, but also just in my personal walk in general. He, he definitely was my hero, my, my, the leader of my rebellion when I was doing my thing. He was a, a great influence on me. And I say that because a lot of people do know that about me. And they, th- they would think to themselves, well, you had this really good um, leadership model in front of you. You had somebody that had done it that was you know, kick ass and he was taking names and, and he was serving his community and he had his heart in the right place, his, his head in the right place. Why did you not pick that up? Well, guess what? Like when you're 21 years old, 22 years old, you don't listen to other people. I don't like anybody that sits around and says that somehow they're a sponge and they like to soak things up. Like those things are, are truths and facts when we're young, right? But until that sponge is extremely full and years have passed to fill it up, you're really not listening. You think you are, but it's all perception based. And so what I saw was when I would hear my dad say the things he said is I saw success. And so his success. And so for me, I thought, okay, so my success is what's important here. But that wasn't the case whatsoever, right? The mindset of my father, why he was so successful is because he gave a damn about his community. He, he was the most compassionate and empathetic person that I ever met in my life. That when we were going through our struggles with our little recession over here, um, especially in the Florida marketplace, right? Because we, our real estate market went to hell in a handbasket. I mean, I had just bought a house um, at the time of the recession, which was the stupidest thing you could do. Thankfully, I still have it. Like, it's a huge feat for me to sit back and say, like, I hung on to it, even though I was, uh, I think at one point, like $150,000 underwater with it, right? Huge number. But but we weathered those storms, those failures with the mindset of what's on the other side, right? All of us have in, in our existence to some extent, but for four solid years, and it was probably closer to about three. My mindset was very much focused on what's in it for me. And even though I had good leadership around me that was telling me, you know, hey, don't, don't, don't worry about you, you know, take care of others and, and continue to build yourself that, that way and through those means and you'll get better at, at understanding you and getting something out of it to some capacity because it's other people that provide for us when it comes to that fact. Like you don't just bill out a customer, you bill out a human that watches Netflix when they go home at night and chills with their family, right? Or is single and loves the downtown scene and fellowships with your neighbors, right? They're, a, they're an individual. And my dad understood that. And because of it, he never treated people like a paycheck. He never treated people like uh, a, con- a consumer at that. He treated them as, their na- as his neighbor at all times, even when they were being negative with him or treating him poorly. He didn't care. He forgave them and just said, they'll get through this part of it on their own time. I'll be the example in the meantime that serves. Now, I'm not saying also that my dad was a pushover by any means. He'd, he'd, whoop, the, he'd whoop your tail, right? He was an ex-football player that was – sought out by some of the most elite universities, right? Because he was a badass. So it's, it's not that, you know, being the nice guy is what, you know, creates success for you. But again, it's the concept of understanding that other people are just as important in in their own walk as you are in yours. And so because of that selfish outlook, I believe that I delayed my success and, and not that there was anything wrong with that by any means, because I believe that my failure taught me so much. I have tons. You know, I, I was working three jobs at one point um, and still making less than $40,000 a year, real life. Um, and because and two of those jobs were service jobs, basically, where I was just getting paid cash. I was hustling my butt off, you know, but in those times I was working 100 hours a week. Uh, right. Cause I had my regular eight to five and then my after hours jobs. 
Um, and I was a young man and I was, I was trying to pay a mortgage that was underwater on, provide for my, my wife, for my dog, <laughs> you know, like looking at things from a bigger picture perspective, also trying to save money, trying to stay out of debt, trying to pay for my wife's degree to, and she wanted to get a master's. It was her dream, right? Like there was all these struggles behind the scenes and I'm somebody that struggles with depression uh, as well. And I have my entire life. Um, and at that point, man, it was a, it was pretty extreme. I mean, I was on the edge a few times for sure, from the perspective of wondering, are things going to get better? You know, I remember breaking my leg, playing soccer during that time. And just like really literally sitting back and saying like, does it get, does it just keep getting worse? Like, what does it look like to get out of here? But you know, and those are my early days of being a salesperson. Now I've only been a business owner with the sales rebellion for about a year, but I also, I'm an entrepreneur, right? So I own a food truck, which is also a restaurant. Shout out to the Bearded Chef. If you're ever in Central Florida, come check us out. Uh, we're out on the East Coast. Shameless plug. <laughs> but um, so I've been running my own businesses now for a couple of years. Um, and I would say that like the biggest failure that I could look at in in my time of doing this so far, even though I, we truly are blessed, bro. We've had a lot of success, especially with the sales rebellion over the last year. And I mean, it's not even been a year, man. And I think I about know. that. And I think, I think about, honestly, I just think about how extremely grateful I am and how blessed we are. Um, and, and really just how the teachings that I was, I was consuming, I was soaking up when I could finally get my head on straight in the first place and, and realize that life was about things that were much bigger than my Xbox, getting a fancy car, buying a bigger house, right? When I could, as a millennial, connect myself to people more than I did the technology side of what we're indoctrinated by from the 80s and 90s. <laughs> uh, I, I started to see things much clearer. And, and because of that, when I started my own business, I knew what I had to do. Right. But I would say the one thing that we, we've struggled with in both cases I've struggled with is a lack of communication internally sometimes, which a big piece of that is to go and fall on your sword when you do those things too. not to be like, hey, sorry that it's been a week since we talked and I employ you. Right. But understanding that that's just absolutely unacceptable to begin with and, and going to that person being like, I screwed up. This is this is not something that I could do with our relationship. Uh, because these things fall apart when that happens. So let's proactively start to fix that. You know, and I, I'm grateful that we we were able, even able to, to identify those types of things at an early uh, point in the career of running the company as well, too, or both of my companies, to be honest with you, because it's easier to communicate people with people, even if it's negative communication or it's communication that you don't really want to have in the first place than it is to try and clean up messes that you've been, you know, literally building up over time that become mountains and piles of garbage that take years to clean up in the first place. Right. So being extremely proactive inside of starting your own business, not just with your clients and prospects, even though they are one of the most important things, so are your people internally, you know, they're, they're the ones that will keep your business thriving and striving, you know, beyond you. So. For sure. And I think, especially going back to the very first point you made with the mindset and with regards to the money, you thought it was going to come extremely quickly. That is something that is, I think a lot of people struggle with today. As in, again, this is where the whole social media aspect comes back into it. It's the fact that all they're seeing are the massive incomes and the supercars and the holidays and the and the mansion because they think they're going to get it overnight they think they're going to buy a course this course is going to teach them in 24 hours how to make a million dollars a year it's not it's not it's not going to happen so i think that mindset's not it's not it's not uncommon and it's just you've got to realize and 
it takes time. Once you start, you've just got to stick it out and chip away at it each day. Otherwise, these the little even if it's just an hour a day, they that hour a day is cumulative. And you can look back over six, seven months and look back and think, cool, if I put in an hour a day over all of that time, it's gonna make a difference. It's gonna make a difference to how what point you're at at that moment in time. So it's not uncommon, that first point. So first point, first failure you made, mindset. Is there a second failure that you can pick out for us? I, I would I would say truthfully, I would say the 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 thing that's interesting about failure in general for me is that it typically it's not what people expect it to be in some cases right and so for the second failure i would tell you that a lot of the things that held me back were traditional crap that people deal with right and so i could sit here and tell you that this i learned this and i learned that and i worked through this and i worked through that but something that steadily stayed with me throughout my entire sales career and still does to this day is the emotional side of things where I am somebody that struggles with depression. And, and like I said earlier, and, and up until um, 2016, I had a really hard time talking to people about it. But once I started to open up to that side of my life and to be able to sit back and tell people like, Hey, I'm not, I'm just having a hard time this week. And like, this is why, and I'm not making an excuse. I'm, I'm being vulnerable right now to let you know that I'm in a dark place. And by being extremely transparent with people in, in those situations, everything changed for me. The way that people interacted with me and engaged with me face to face, over the phone, through email, on social was like changed overnight at that. And even my existing accounts, you know, my customers that, that I had really good relationships with, they started to realize when I would, you know, kind of be a little bit more again, vulnerable with them and transparent, they would realize that the whole time, that's why they were always attracted to me to begin with. And, and a lot of them would come out and directly say that to me that you've always been extremely real about who you are and what you struggle with. But my, my failure there was that even though they, th that was their response to them, I was never in realization of it until I lost my dad. And after my dad passed away from cancer, um, that was a, it was an awakening for me where I started to sit back and say, this is how short life truly is. And this is how precious life truly is. And that if I don't start being a lot more intentional about moments, about relationships, about every little thing, um, then I'm, I'm going to fail. And, and so it, that second failure comes down to people listening that want to learn from it, sitting back and saying, what is, what is the one thing in your life that you hide from other people? That's, that's a problem. Um, get it out in the open. And if you're, if you're not comfortable telling people with that, I'm, I'm sorry. I truly am. I'm sorry for you because I was that way too. For a long time, I stayed in that bubble and I used it as an excuse. And, and because that's what it turns into is an excuse, right? Where, well, I have some things that I struggle with that you don't know about. And so I can't do these things like you do, right? It's an excuse. And, but when I started to tell people like, I can't do that because I struggle with depression, it's really difficult for me. The amount of empathy that you're able to draw from another human being in those moments is absolutely brilliant. The relationship that you didn't have before that builds from that is also absolutely brilliant. The success that starts to glean and that you can visualize but also touch and feel in those moments is the best part. And sometimes it's emotional. Other times it's, it's transactional even. But no matter what, it's successes that come from it when you get into that mindset and you start to 
be more transparent about the one vulnerability that you're afraid to tell anybody about. For sure. And I do really appreciate you sharing that because obviously that's a very personal thing to you. And this is, I, I do talk about this as well. I always mention like, it'd be great to be at a point where we can talk about mental health as we do our physical health. It's, right. it's cause it's the only way it is going to get better if, is if people do actually talk about it. As you say, yes. it's got a hell of a lot better for you since you started talking about it and people as, and it's not easy. I, I personally don't suffer. I'm not saying I never will, but I don't suffer from that. I'm thankful that I don't at the moment suffer from anything like that. But I know it is there and I am more than willing to talk to people about it because we are more than when we, for example, we break our leg. The first thing we do, we go to the hospital, we get help. It's, it's just an instant reaction. It would be great to be at a point where we are starting to feel we are starting to be our mental health is at a place where it's not great and then we instantly think right we go to a therapist done but people don't think like that at the moment it's think oh i can internalize it and try and get over it myself when really they should just go and talk and get therapy on it like it needs to be the instant response and maybe one day we'll be at that point but it just takes people to talk about it and it will get better with time but that's the point that I'd love everything to be at. We talk about mental health as easily as we do about physical. Truth. I'm in agreement with you, bro. I'm sure. And I'd like to quickly dive into a bit of um, LinkedIn because you are a LinkedIn guru. And as someone who has set a 2020 goal of growing my personal brand on LinkedIn, I'd love to extract as much value as I possibly can on LinkedIn. So sort of my strategy at the moment, I'll outline what I'm doing. And if you could tell me what I could do better, that is brilliant. So I have set myself the goal of posting every single day, once a day at the moment. If I get the time, I won't use that as an excuse. When I produce enough content, I will put out two pieces a day. But what are the best ways? What? So just talk through some of the tactics. What are the best tips and tactics for building your network and audience? What type of content should everyone be posting? Text, video, photo, and just how do you get more reach? How do you get yourself out there? Yeah, so I have a big opinion on this. I started posting on LinkedIn two years ago and I started posting every day like you just um, talked about as well for your 2020 goals. And I did it because of the influence of a friend of mine that said, the stories you tell are awesome. And I don't know if you notice it, but the people that comment, like they, they come back and they continue to, to interact with you because you're kind of an outlet for them to some capacity. That's your tribe. And I remember when, when we first started having those discussions, I thought that's a very interesting concept and thought and started to realize too, that if you look at some of the biggest movements in the world, you'll notice that, you know, the people that follow them or subscribe to, to the notion of what it is that they're doing or believe and, and what it is that their action plan is when it comes to the product, the service, whatever it might be, they're not consumers, right? These people are, are literal followers. They, they're not just people that, that sit and take it all in and go, that's really cool. They preach it, bro. They're evangelists. You know, they're, they're part of that tribe. And I think that that's a really good word to use when thinking about your LinkedIn following where, who is your tribe and where are they and how will you find them? So for me, it was, 
in the beginning, it was, you know, 25 likes a post kind of thing. And the metrics, you know, the metrics have changed drastically, by the way, on, on LinkedIn. I don't think enough people talk about that enough where I, I could get a million impressions on a post that had, you know, 3,000, 4,000 likes, right? When I was first posting on, on LinkedIn. And because of how viral those posts went, I amassed a, a, a big following. I've added, um, sent direct connections, I should say, on LinkedIn. I've probably sent 800 total. And I have, I'm just about to hit 22,000 followers. So my following is strictly organic. It comes from people reaching out to me. Um, I've also probably declined, I don't know, 10,000 friend requests probably over the last couple of years. Because one thing that I have been super intentional about is the tribe. And so if somebody adds me and I head to their page and they're not in sales or they have no background in sales or marketing for that matter, and then I look at their activity and they haven't engaged with one of my friends, an influencer that, that is also in, in sales or one of my posts, and I spend about you know two to three total minutes per friend request sometimes, if people don't send me a message up front, um, which takes a lot of time, but it is paid off dividends, bro. I have 9,000 direct connections in that 22,000 base following. So only 9,000 people in that, in that following have actually accepted their friend request, right? And because of that, I have, I have, as somebody that's growing my LinkedIn tribe, I can still put 21,000 people in direct contact with me, which is mm -hmm. a massive number when you have a following like I have because most people get maxed out at 30 and then they start getting followers from there. Or they've got, you know, 15% of their total tribe at that point are followers from the research I've done. So I strategically from the very beginning decided that that was what I wanted to do. And, and the way to get there was, again, to post content consistently. And then there was two other extremely key pieces of the puzzle. One was support from my community. So getting people engaged and involved in my, in my local communities, but also in my national communities when it came to their profession or or their outlook. So finding people that shared the same type of outlook as me or the same type of passion as me, even if it was in a different vertical, but it was still something along the lines of what it is that I believed in, right, to some capacity and engaging in their comment, not sending them friend requests and saying, hey, we should connect, but just engaging in their comments, right, and, and being somebody that was supporting them. They would in turn, come back and support me. And I think that this is one of the big algorithm hacks that nobody talks about. And this is just a theory. Uh, I don't know if it's actually true, although I have spoken to a few people that could, could probably confirm it, but they just don't. <laughs> but when you spend time in other people's comment section, if they're a first or second connection, um, and second is the most important here, right? Because second connections are what grow your network. They will eventually start to see you in their feed. So if you go and you post on influencers feeds and you get likes by 150 people that are second connections to you, you'll start to show up in their feed over time, especially if they like, you know, two to three different comments on two to three different posts. Um, and eventually they just start consuming your own, your content. And then eventually they hit the yeah. follow button or they send a request, right? So I think that's a huge component to, to my success on LinkedIn. And I encourage everybody to do it. Gary Vee calls it like, you know, the two cent method or whatever it is. I remember reading that mm -hmm. in one of his books. But the big piece of the puzzle for me is not so much about like going and, and leaving 70 comments a day as much as it's extremely intentional comments that you put out there instead of just good point or great post, but going and like literally leaving a paragraph or two worth of thoughts 
for someone else to consume when they're inside of that content and to feel a healthy amount of indoctrination toward your brand and toward your message. But the third thing that I would say, well, actually that was three, right? Having other people support you going and posting on comments, but I will give you a third one just because. Um, but the third thing is, is to get with people outside of LinkedIn. That's a big piece of the puzzle is when you like, let's say that you're targeting uh, a group of a hundred sales reps, send something to their sales leader that will impress them, but also indoctrinate them again in a healthy manner toward what it is that you're trying to accomplish uh, in a way that serves them. So I would send some of my audacious marketing stuff to particularly to leaders that were, that I would find on LinkedIn and tell them, you know, Hey, I post, I like your content or I post my own content too. I wanted to send you this for your sales team. You guys should use it in your prospecting efforts. And then all of a sudden their entire team would be following me on LinkedIn. Right. So that was one, I, I don't do enough of that anymore. So I'm also admitting out loud that like something I started to do that was super successful for me, I stopped doing, but so because time management is extremely important in all this as well, you have to figure out what it is that you're going to really hone in on. But the point being that those, those things, the intentional side of, of those things more than anything are what are really attract people to your social. And what's crazier about that, bro, is that, I just kind of built a Twitter page and built a, an Instagram page and built a TikTok. And over time, people have just started following me there. I don't ask for people to follow me on those platforms either. Instagram probably being the one that's the most popular with people coming and seeking me out. But those things turn to actual inbound leads over time as well. So coaching clients come to us all the time now. Literally 90% of what we of our business that we get is inbound, and it's through social between LinkedIn, um, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I specifically love the point you make about the um, the being serious with your commenting because I hate it when you scroll through the feed and it's this great post. Love this. I agree. This is great. Like it's boring. And when you see someone that's commented a two three paragraph comment and they're the ones that get likes as well. So they'll bump to the top of the comment section. And right. again, I'm trying to make sure it takes long. It does take longer. Like admittedly, it takes longer to do a decent comment, but it pays off. And the other person, the, the author of the, the post as well, I found that if I take time in my commenting, appreciates the comment more. It's just, it just goes all full circle. And if you're doing that time and time again, so I'm very new to it. So I'm just trying to find out as much as possible about the platform as I can at the moment. Because I think it's a great platform as well. It's one of those, this and TikTok are the only platforms at the moment that the engagement rates and the potential reach is ridiculous. Like Especially with TikTok, you can have zero followers, post one video, and it get a million views. It's, there's no other platform out there at the moment that can do that. It's staggering. Um, so yeah, so thank you for those LinkedIn tips. One more question on LinkedIn. What content, what type of content do you think works best for you? Text, video, photo? I think text still gets the biggest reach. Um, and that's, you know, from somebody that uses uh, both forms, you know, both video and long form text. Mm. Um, I've, I've done a whole week of video before and gotten pretty much the consistency that I get in posting the text as well. But way more views of the text posts and clicks than you would from the videos at the end of the day. 
Um, however, I think that the video, the video side is extremely effective. I think that people enjoy watching and experiencing the content just as much. So I think there's a strategy though, because I think that people are also getting sick of just like hitting play on a video and seeing someone's face for the entire thing for two and a half to four minutes. Right. So I think that there's, there, there are people out there that understand that. And so because of it, they have a lot of cutscenes, and they, they're standing and they're sitting and then it's a POV, you know, of them walking, right? Like there's, there's a lot of people that kind of get that experience portion, but no, more, more so than anything, I think the focus needs to be on what kind of experience are you giving your reader? Because people aren't following you on social because of you. They're following you on social because you have sparked something inside of them to think differently for themselves, to believe differently in themselves, to look at the world differently to some capacity. So there's power in your words. Your words should move mountains. And in communication theories, they talk about, especially in the sales world, um, experts talk about how 60 odd percent uh, uh, of your communication is your tonality, 30 odd percent, is um, the the body language um, that you that you have, and and that's phone or in person, but it it varies a little bit on the phone. Like the the body language goes down a little bit, the tonality goes higher, but then a very small percentage, I think it's like seven percent and three percent. So phone and in person is the actual words you say. But I think the problem with that is that we focus so we look at that and go, oh well, it doesn't matter what you say as long as you have good tonality, a good delivery you know, then you're good. But I think what we're missing is that because it's such a small amount of our communication that it's the most important, that the words that you speak should, should move people to a place of them taking action. And if you focus on that when it comes to the LinkedIn content, whether it's video, whether it's text, you will cause results for yourself and you will cause change in your readers. And that is how you find your tribe. I agree. And Spawn, thank you for that advice. I'm taking it all on board with my 2020 posting goal. Um, I have five. This is so. This again is a new part of my podcast. I normally ask three standard questions at the end of my um, podcast episode, but now I am changing this to a final five because I think it sounds more catchy. So it's quick fire questions um, that don't need to spend longer than one or two minutes each on. So we'll see how you do it. See how you do. First attempt at the final five. So question number one, who is the first person that comes to mind when I say the word successful? Curtis Dupree, my father. Your father. Is there any particular, just because you looked up to him throughout your whole journey and he influenced everything you did? And a community. Uh, let me just share this, that at his funeral, just briefly, when I took the podium, I hadn't looked out into the crowd. But when I took the podium, it was the first time that I'd raised my head and looked out into the room. And the room's max capacity was about a thousand people. And it was wall to wall, people standing, not sitting, and they were still people coming in the door. And so that to me is what true success is. It's it's when the the door is closed and nobody is looking, what are you doing? Well, that's that's incredible. And that's a great point to make for the very first question. Um, question number two, what is the best investment you've ever made? This can be anything to do with money, time, energy, or just simply an Amazon purchase. The best investment I ever made, bro. I would say the time that I put into the relationship with my wife, because what she has done for me in my walk is 
unmeasurable when it comes to the success that I've had, the way that she's helped me from an attitude perspective, from an outlook perspective, all things. I think that time is the most important thing that we can give to one another and it being intentional with your time and with people specifically that you know are going to change you for the better. My wife is that person for me, that that will be your greatest investment as well too. God, these are, these are such humbling answers. I love them. It's brilliant. Um, question number three, do you have a quote that you live by or think of often? I do. Um, it's by Robert Ringer, but it is also debated about who actually uh, said this quote, because there's like four different versions of it too. But the one that, that I love is, bleach the bones of countless millions who on the verge of victory sat down to rest and while resting, they died. There we go. That's a great first quote. And I think I'm going to make a note of all these quotes because on my um, on my Instagram page, I basically do a post wherever I, I either come up with a little passage that I thought throughout the day or a quote by someone. And then I sort of give it my own interpretation in the caption section. It's just something I like nice. doing as part of my Instagram content. So this is almost a segment where I can sort of gain quotes to use on my Instagram page as well. Um, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Uh, I wouldn't give him any uh, because like I talked about earlier, my 20-year-old self, as soon as I told him all the secrets to success that I wish that I would have known, because there's nothing wrong with wishing that you would have known what you do when you get older. But as soon as I told him all those things, he would have walked out uh, onto the front lawn, jumped in the car, done a donut in the yard, threw a beer out the window and, and was screaming, F you, on his way out with his middle finger high in the sky, bro, because my 20-year-old self didn't give a damn about anything else but myself. So, It's a great point to make. Final question. And it's a morbid, this is one question that I have kept the same throughout all of my podcast episodes. And I've, I always ask it because I get super tr- interesting answers and every person has a different response. It's a bit morbid, but it's, it's, it's fun. Um, are you, are you afraid of dying? No. Why not? Because I know where I'm going and I know who, who's going to meet me there as well too. I'm very resolved in my life walk, um, and, and in eternity that waits for me. Awesome. That's all I have for you today. Thank you. Awesome, Ethan. Thank um, you, bro. Where can my, um, where can my listeners follow up with you? Where LinkedIn, any other platforms that you want? Them yeah, to? All, every social platform is good, bro. But salesrebellion.com is a great place to start. The about me page has some of my more personal information, but you can always head to, to Instagram at salesrebellion, Twitter at salesrebellion, uh, TikTok leader of the salesrebellion, facebook.com uh, slash salesrebellion. Uh, you can head over to linkedin.com backslash in backslash copier warrior. You can also find the sales rebellions business page as well on there, whatever you're doing to find me, wherever you find me, make sure that you introduce yourself though. I'd love to learn more about you. I'd love to understand what your walk looks like and how I can compliment it. Awesome. And I will leave those all in the show notes below. So simply scroll down and click. Thank you again for your time, Dale. This has been another awesome episode of CEO Journals. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast, and I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible business owners and entrepreneurs every single week. So you can really help me out by smashing that subscribe button and by leaving me a five-star review over in the iTunes store. 
It literally takes two seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. Make sure you tune into the next episode where I'm going to be talking to another incredibly interesting guest. I'll be discussing their journey and providing tips to all your aspiring and current business owners. Have a lovely rest of your day. And once again, thank you for tuning in to CEO Journals.